Hey, Father, we do come into your presence from a variety of places tonight. Uh, and so I just pray that as we uh, open your word and gather in your presence, as we eat at your table, as we hear from you tonight, that uh, we would leave different than when we came. Uh, help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us. Help us to live into that vision, even when it's harder to see. Thank you, Jesus, for dying, for rising again, for sharing with us all of who you are so that we could be with you forever. Open our eyes. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened right now as Paul prayed so that we can comprehend uh, what you're asking of us tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, be seated. Yeah. Um, Hey, welcome to Regeneration. My name is Kyle. <coughs> I am the pastor here, and I am super glad to have you uh, on Labor Day weekend. So I don't know if you get like points in heaven for coming to church on holidays weekends, but you do in my book. So high fives. Uh, we are on the third week of a 10-week series in the book of Ephesians called The Living Church. Uh, and I'm excited about tonight as we uh, make kind of a shift in where we've been going with this series. The last two weeks, if you were with us, focused a lot on the nature of our identity and maybe even individually, that we are chosen and loved, that God has um, planned beforehand, according to his great pleasure, to save us, to make us his own. And, and Paul, as we move into the latter part of chapter 2 of Ephesians, starts to move from a, for lack of a better word, a me to a we, from the individual people in the community to the shape that community takes in their life together. Uh, what Paul wants us to see, again, I'm not going to keep saying this, is that a living church is not defined by its doctrine or its traditions. It is not defined by its leadership structure, its committees, its plans. It is not defined by denomination. It is defined um, by being a living, breathing organism that wherever we go, we are the church all of the time. And, 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 and Paul really is going to give shape tonight to this idea that w the difference between a living church and a dead church is, is found in the way that they behave. That frankly, a living church or a church that on the outside has a lot of people going there, a lot of money, a lot of things happening might actually be a dead church if the nature of their relationships don't match up to what Paul's going to outline tonight. Um, and so as we step into Ephesians 2, I just want to start with one verse. This is uh, found on page 705 of the Bible next to you. And I'd encourage you to grab that and just stick with me um, as we go through tonight. 705. Uh, I just want to read verse, verses 17 and 18 just to kind of give us an idea of where we're going. He says this. He, Jesus, brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to you, the Jews who were near now all of us can, be, can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Paul, at this moment, is writing to a divided church. Paul is writing to a church largely divided not by ideology, but by ethnicity. Here's what you need to understand about kind of the Bible and the way God has worked in history, that for most of history, God used the children of Abraham, the Jews, as his main instrument for acting in the world. And I know you and I think of Jews, we think of Israel, we think of maybe the outline on a map, but what's more the Bible's more concerned with 
ethnicity than geography. And so we're talking about the ethnic nation of Israel who are the sons of Abraham. God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and said, I will bless you so that you may be a blessing to the nations. And that was intended to humble the Jewish people so that they would throw the gates wide to the nations and that everyone would come to know Yahweh. But they, took, but they forgot that they were blessed to be a blessing to others. And they just lived that I'm blessed and I'm special. And they took their chosenness not again as something to humble them, but as something to make them proud. And they actually became exclusive toward the Gentiles. And Gentile is a category word for anybody that's not a Jew. And so the Jews became rather exclusive. In fact, some Jewish writers said that the only use, good, good use that Gentile women had was to bear more Jewish sons. Um, and so it was, more, it was not uncommon for a Jew to avoid at any cost any kind of physical contact with a Gentile, even going so far as to spit on them, and they came near going far out of their way. And so it's into this scene that the church is born where all of a sudden Jew and Gentile are put into one community together. As an avid, well not avid, but occasional Steelers fan in a community of mostly Browns fans, perhaps we can sort of get a little tiny taste of this, that Browns fans and Steelers fans and even those crazy people that think the Cincinnati Bengals ought to be called a real team but probably shouldn't, are now called to be in one community, These, this overwhelming hostility took root in the church in Ephesus and really in the church throughout the Mediterranean. A little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus, at the time of this writing, had at least a population of 300,000 people uh, and housed uh, the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the Temple of Diana. I think when we think of Bible times, we tend to think of... Um, you know, people kind of like living in huts with rags, kind of like poking at a fire. But actually, the people in Ephesus were really rather well off. Ephesus, being on a coast, was a center for trade. And uh, because of that, Ephesus became this diverse city full of Jews and Gentiles. And so when Paul shows up there to plant a church and proclaims the gospel in both the Jewish synagogues and then on the streets in Ephesus, all of these people place their faith in Christ and are sitting in church one day, and all of a sudden somebody, some Jew notices they're sitting next to a Gentile, and a Gentile knows that they're sitting next to a Jew, and hostility takes root in the church at Ephesus. And what Paul wants us to see today is that in Christ, we are one. In Christ, we are one. And I think by the end of this, some of us will have maybe a different idea of church membership, or at least how belonging to a church ought to function differently than, say, your membership to Sam's Club. Paul, again, is is trying to break down a wall of hostility that exists between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and he begins in chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 13, to address Gentile or non-Jewish believers, and that'll be up on the screen, but listen to these words. Paul says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders, You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. 
We'll see this in a second, but the Jews kind of puffed themselves up because of their chosenness and their long legacy of having known Yahweh. Meanwhile, the Gentile, Yahweh, by the way, is the Jewish, the name that God revealed to the Jewish people as his kind of holy and special name. But meanwhile, the Gentiles responded to the Jews' kind of puffiness and pride by becoming prideful themselves and saying, well, y'all have known, maybe you all knew about God for centuries, but you didn't really understand the gospel. In fact, your people rejected Jesus and we, the nations, have come to accept them. And so Paul wants to take them down a few notches by beginning on this idea that don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. He makes a big deal in this text about circumcision, and if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, you need to go home and ask your mom, uh, because I don't want to say those words out loud. But circumcision was the outward sign of the old covenant that every Jew, Jewish male was given. And that circumcision became a source of pride for them, as did following the law, the teachings, as did a whole bunch of things. And so Paul addresses them in verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us, he says. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles, be creating in himself one new people. You could argue that that could be translated one new ethnicity, one new people from the two groups. Verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Jews had for centuries encountered God by following a strict set of regulations of going to the temple this many times of year and sacrificing this kind of animal based on your income and what you could do. And through that, you received forgiveness. Through that, you encountered God. And in following these kind of outward rites, they came to believe that they were right with God. But what Jesus is doing in the new covenant is saying, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're Gentile. It doesn't matter what you do outwardly. Paul would say elsewhere it's written in the heart that there is something that needs to change. Actually, the theological word for it, fun, t- fun note, is regeneration, rebirth, that something needs to happen inside of you in order for this all to become real. And Paul is addressing, he uses the word twice in this text, the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And here's the deal. We can look at this text and go, all of these are problems 2,000 years old that don't really matter to us, but we're wrong. Because the bridge that we walk across from then to now is the hostility that exists in churches now. The number five reason that unchurched people say in Trumbull County why they don't want to participate in church is because churches are mean to each other. Unforgiveness is rampant. Complaining, gossiping, bitterness, slander, uh, eye-rolling, what happens is hostility creeps in any time we forget this foundational principle, which is that it's not about me. Jesus is calling us to live in a community together that is marked by humility, but the minute it becomes about me and what I want and my preferences and the way I think it should go, hostility begins to step into the scenario. And when I think it's about me and five other people think it's about me, inevitably conflict ensues and so any and especially those of us who have walked with jesus for a long time i mean you know we you kind of can joke about some of this stuff but my testimony quote unquote my story of coming to know jesus 
does not include me being plucked from a life of drugs and prostitution. It really is just the very boring story of a five-year-old boy putting his faith in Jesus one night when his grandma told him about it, and then being an obedient first child, always kind of doing the right thing just because it was the right thing to do. But the scary thing about that is that when you live out of that place, we become the Jews in this text who because we have always done the right thing and always said the right thing and always thought the right thing and always acted the right way, we have favor with God more than these crazy people over here who are, you know, sex and drugs and all this kind of stuff. And, and then what happens is we create a competition then between those people that are lit, kind of figure out Jesus out of perhaps some sort of crisis or really terrible lifestyle which maybe is how we would resonate more with the Gentiles, and then it starts to become, well, I'm better because I've always done the right thing. No, I'm better because I walked out of, you know, I walked out of prostitution, da 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 If you've walked with Jesus for a long time, it's very easy for you to become the Jews in this text. It's very easy to assume the role of assuming yourself to be better than everyone. And the truth is, I need delivered from that kind of sin just as badly as a heroin addict needs delivered. Because that, self, that self-sustaining kind of pride is just as damaging to a soul as a drug. What Jesus wants us to see is that to be part of the new community is to know that he has, in verse 17, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away and peace to you who were near. You know what's crazy about verse 17 is both those who were far and those who were near got preached the same message. They were both told the same thing. They were both told, you need Jesus, so hurry up and figure this out. And in verse 18, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. We are one in this, that every human on the planet that has a pulse has a desperate and overwhelming need for an eternal relationship with an eternal Christ. And that no matter what they walk out of in order to step across the line of faith, we all need to be humbled by that because it is only when we are humbled by the fact that we have been plucked from the fire by Jesus that we can start to treat one another with love and respect and dignity and humility and service. And that was a big piece last week, if you were with us, that a lot of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is about you can't boast because everything that you've been given is a gift and that you were the very worst. And it's only living not out of this very guilt-ridden, I'm the worst thing ever, but out of this very grace-filled, yeah, I was terrible, and Jesus came along and got me, that I can suddenly treat others with dignity and respect. And that's really what Paul wants us to see as we hit the latter part of chapter 2. Verse 19, Paul says, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. He'll return to that imagery later in chapter 4. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Verse 22 through him you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by God's spirit. Paul shifts from this idea of like, no, you are one. You've been preached this message of peace. The hostility, the, I love that idea that it says that the wall of hostility toward each other has been put to death. And now Paul wants us to see that, that, that we have been united together and gives us four images to help us kind of put 
that together in our minds. And, it, and here's the deal. We don't make a big deal out of membership at Regeneration. Uh, we don't get, like, nobody gets, like, a sticker that says, like, I'm a member at Regeneration. At least I don't have one of those if maybe the rest of you do. But, um, but church membership is this richly biblical idea but I think most 21st century Americans have treated church membership in an unbiblical way. I, I, as part of a, when I was in the non-denominational Bible circles, there's always like three people in every non-denominational church because non-denominational churches attract people that don't like authority. So then there's always like the like John Wayne type that then also feels very strongly that like church membership is not a biblical category. There were like three people like that at our church in Illinois. And again, I think that the category of church membership is actually fairly biblical because there's always a clear knowledge in the scripture of who's in and who's out. I think the challenge is, as 21st century Americans, we tend to read our own eyes into the text and we get it wrong. And so when Paul first introduces this idea of citizenship, uh, which I think I have a picture of a girl uh, saying the pledge, when Paul brings in this idea of citizenship, as 21st century Americans, we read that and we equate our citizenship as Americans with our rights. I am an American and I have rights. I can, I can worship how I want to, I can say what I want to, I can carry whatever gun I want to, I can plead the fifth when I want to. I mean, I, I have rights. And God help you if you impinge on my rights as an American because I will get the big gun that I have and I will shoot you dead because that's how we work in America. And so we bring this to this text and it goes, well, mess me in church that I have rights. But the truth of the matter is rights, frankly, aren't a biblical category. God isn't concerned with what rights you have. God is concerned with the character that comes along with citizenship and really what he, he, what he has in mind when Paul uses this word citizenship, it's, it's not about these are my rights as a member in God's house, that my preferences need to be met and I need to be listened to and I need to be tailored to. What it actually has to do is I would actually use the word allegiance. Citizenship bears with it the notion of allegiance, and this is in Philippians chapter 1. It's really one of the only other times that Paul uses this idea of citizenship and Dylan, this isn't on the screen, but he says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together with the faith, for the faith, which is the good news. Paul says that to have citizenship among the people of God in Philippians 1.27 means two things. It means character and allegiance to a purpose. It means living as Christ would. Paul says, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. In chapter 4, Paul's going to say, I, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Our citizenship bears with it not rights, but responsibilities. And the responsibility is this, be like Jesus. but it also has allegiance to a mission. He says, I know that you'll standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith. What is the purpose? Acts 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The purpose of the church 
the purpose of regeneration is, I'm sorry if this is bad news to you, I don't care what you want. I can't say this at the church I serve in the morning because there's a hundred of them and they could riot. But I think I could take you on. And here's the deal. I don't care what you want. I only care for the next 50 people that we're going to reach. And all of our resources and all of our energy and all of our drive goes there. Our allegiance is to living a life like Jesus would and to doing anything that we can to reach the next 50 people for Jesus, period. Paul does say that we're members in this text, but he says in verse 19 that we are members of a family. We're members of God's family. Now, I'm a member of a few things. I'm a, I'm a member of Sam's Club, which means, frankly, that when I need 80,000 rolls of toilet paper, they're always accessible to me, which really works because we now have a basement, so we now have somewhere to put them. We used to buy these and be like, what do we do with these other 24 rolls that we're not doing using with? Uh, uh, and then when I need 30 rolls of paper towels, I can get them. And when I need a five-gallon thing of Gatorade, I guess I can find that, you know? And when I need 77 Snicker bars in one box, they've got that covered. But here's what I really like about being a member of Sam's. Here's the only reason why anybody is a member of Sam's Club. It's one word. It's the samples. Okay? And I've never had a sample at Sam's Club that I was like, gosh darn it, that's good enough to buy. It's always good enough to eat. It's never quite good enough to buy. But if I don't like something, if I eat a little piece of chicken that gives me salmonella and I start puking over in the floral aisle, here's what I can do is I can run over to the management and I can say, this is wrong, you need to fix it. As a member of, of Amazon, I'm on Amazon Prime member. Last winter, I bought some boots uh, that came in two days, thank you very much, uh, because I shouldn't have to wait any longer, and recently ordered a toilet seat for our new house. Took five days. It felt like an eternity. And I ordered these boots that kind of started doing this weird thing, so I wrote customer service, and I said, I paid a lot of money for these boots. They're doing this weird thing. I want a new pair of boots. And you know what? They wrote me back within 30 minutes and said, we've already shipped a new pair of boots to you. Isn't that wonderful? I think I was supposed to send back the other boots, which I didn't end up doing, but the point is, I got a new pair of boots. And if I don't like those pair of boots, I can go and I can ask for another pair of boots for free because I am a member and you do what I say. I'm a member of a gym and that means I get to order my trainer around and I am supposed to get, he's gonna make me skinny even if I only eat chocolate all day because that's his response. And if he doesn't, I'm gonna complain and I'm gonna yell and I'm gonna write a negative Facebook ad. We view membership as I can, membership ensures that I get what I want. Membership ensures that if I, have, if I have a grievance, I can get that resolved quickly. But here's what I love about this is Paul says, Paul doesn't say you're not, he, you're, we're not a member of a club, we're not a member of a business, we're not a member of an organization, we're a member of a family. And so when I was growing up and my mom made me food, if I didn't like it, I didn't get to email customer service, or if I did, the bad news was she was running customer service and the answer was, no, you're gonna eat that. If I didn't like the chores I had to do, I couldn't appeal to a higher authority because as a member of my family, it was just tough. The reason that be, this is what Paul wants us to see, the reason church membership is really good is it's not about getting what I want. It's not about making sure my needs are met. It's not about the it's about assuring that I am cared for and loved and served and frankly held accountable because I also had to come home and show my mom my, my report card every nine weeks. Membership isn't about I get what I want because I pay my dues. Membership is I make sure other people get what they want because I'm part of a larger thing here. 
Membership is I am held accountable to be loving and caring. Membership in a family, Paul says. He also uses this idea of a building. Paul says, together we are his house. My grandma used to tell me that when I was little, that when we were in church, we were in God's house, which meant I wasn't allowed to run anywhere. Um, No running in God's house. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We, you know, we just moved a couple weeks ago, and in order to move, I had to use almost all of 26 gallons of paint, uh, six of which were for my ceiling. And uh, seriously, thank goodness I have been working out because I got very good at this motion, you know? Uh, and, and now we've got it painted, and now we have to clean it, and there are dishes to do, and I have a very large yard I need to mow, and there's going to come a winter when I'm going to have to plow that stuff. And let's, not, let's be clear about something. I'm not complaining. I love this house. I feel blessed to have it. But when you have a house, it go, going with that house are things that you need to do to keep it up. And membership in God's family bears with it. We have to do things to keep this working. If you're part of Regeneration's leadership team, pretty much everybody's got a job. Uh, because what we know at the leadership level is that as a part of our church, everybody, we've got to work to mow our proverbial lawn, right? In order for our church to function and be healthy, we can't let the weeds grow up three feet, which may or may not have been kind of what I found, and actually may actually have one or two of those in my back beds. But the point is, house goes with it, this shared responsibility. But even what I like about the language in verse 20, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself, you don't build a house and then don't put people in it. And there's something about this language to me that beckons me toward the language of hospitality, that we keep our house clean, I mow my yard, I do all of these things that we can have folk in it, which I think is important. And that the foundation is secure, the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. And then verse 21, this is where it really gets good. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Listen, the Jewish readers would have seen that and gone bink, because here's what's crazy about this. For centuries, the major way, I mean, the main avenue that Jewish people encountered God, they didn't go to church every week. They went to temple once a year, and they brought the little lamb that was unblemished, and they watched the priest in a rather gruesome fashion slit that thing's throat on the altar, and then the priest would say, your sins have been forgiven. Um, and if you couldn't afford a little lamb, we'd get you some pigeons or an oxen or something like that and, and watch. I mean, and the temple was this place that you went to, and then you went home from. It was fixed geographically. There was only one place. And Paul is saying, through, he says, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple of the Lord. Do you know why it's so important that we love one another and we care for one another and that we don't roll our eyes about one another and that we fight for unity of purpose and love and care? It's because when we gather in this space, it is always plus one. Whatever number we write down on attendance, it is always plus one because Jesus makes himself present to people as his people gather in love and unity. There's a song by the Gettys that says he dwells in the presence of his people. That when we gather, there's something that happens. When we go to Taco Bell and hang out as the people of Jesus and we do it right, 
there's somebody else there and that and the person behind the counter that took forever to make my burrito says there's something different about those people frankly it's not because you are different it's because there's somebody else in the conversation and paul says through him you gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where god lives by his spirit i mean think about this for a second god dwells where his people are there's a really beautiful verse in john 4 that first uh, john 4 that where it says no one has ever seen god and if you talk to a person that's seen god it's one of the kids that like wrote the you know i went up to heaven and came back stories all right but no one as a rule has ever seen god but the, the text says this it says but if we love one another his love is made manifest among us hear me on this when we love one another people get to see god when i was little i'd go to chuck e cheese's and they um, would stamp my hand and my dad's hand with this thing and then i'd go play and get sweaty and eat pizza and then when we would go to leave we would have to stand under a black light and my dad and i we would have to have matching stickers for me to leave and of course as like a seven-year-old your greatest terror is like what if mine's rubbed off and i'm trapped forever when we love one another something invisible becomes visible our love becomes a black light that helps people see the stamp of god on our lives and so paul is so earnest before he can move really anywhere else into conversation about the church paul needs them paul needs us to understand that there is something different about the community of the church it is different than Sam's Club. It is different than my gym. It is different than Amazon. It is different than the Olympic Club. It is different than any place that we have a membership to because it is not about us. It's actually about other people that we become a member to say it's not about me. Just to close this off, there's this really beautiful text in John 17, right near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus goes away into a garden and he prays. Um, <clears throat> he prays. And, and he prays for a number of things in that. But in verse 20, Jesus says, I'm, or verse 22, I have given them, his disciples, the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one i am in them and you are in me may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me that you love them as much as you love me here here's something that is utterly mind-blowing first jesus took a minute to pray for us Scriptures say that he's always at the Father's right hand interceding on our behalf. So Jesus is always praying for us. But John takes a minute and right, and I don't, know, I, I don't know how John got that. I don't know when John heard Jesus praying that he kind of wrote that down or just had it memorized or how the Spirit brought it back to mind when he sat down to write the book of John. But, but, but he, he, Jesus prays that we would be one. Why? so that people far from god would know who jesus is it is our love and our unity one for another 
that makes a tremendous difference. And, and, and so kind of just one closing challenge on that because we're about to go to the table. There's a couple points in scripture that makes a pretty strong case that if, if you are angry at someone, if you're bitter with someone, if you are uh, been gossiping about someone or slandering them, and y'all are part of the same community, the same church, the text says don't get near this table. Because what we're doing is we're not just like eating a little piece of bread and then kind of moving on with our lives. What we're doing is we're encountering Jesus here. And when we, when we eat the same bread and we drink of the same cup, while holding harder, like bitterness or anger in our heart towards someone, we're actually making this whole thing a lie. And so... Um, Go fix whatever you need to fix if there's something going on. But my other challenge is that we, as a church, have this growing edge. We maybe on our good days get a B- minus on loving one another. And we need to have an A- plus there. And I think we become, at Regeneration, pretty task-driven because we're going to say amen here in a minute. And then we've got chairs to move and screens to take back and candles to blow out and coffee to dump out and packets of sugar to put back. And we get so task-oriented and then it's like, all right, deuces, see ya next week. And then we kind of do it all again and we lose the second where I actually like look at a person and be like, oh, there you are and you have a whole story and a whole week. I was just with somebody last night for like three hours and finally get around to asking her about her job and she says, oh, actually on Monday they let me know my position was eliminated. I'm glad we hung around for a minute or two. I mean, we need to take a minute, church, and look at each other and love one another because nobody is interested. Hear me on this. Sierra's really good vocally. We can hear good vocals anywhere. Um, the coffee is Starbucks. I can get Starbucks coffee anywhere. And nobody is really on their couch thinking right now, who wonder who I could be listening to monologue for 30 minutes. What they are thinking about is, I wonder who can really, really love me. I wonder where's a place that I can belong. And, it, and it's Jesus, his broken body, and his spilt blood that unites us together. The text says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And when he did, he offered it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, later in the supper, Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for many. Drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At this table, we take what is invisibly true about us and make it visible. And that's this, that I, being united to Jesus, am united to every person of faith in this room. If you have stepped across the line of faith, you and I are members of the same family. We are fellow citizens in God's kingdom. We are being built together into a house, into a temple where God lives by his spirit. Friends, my prayer for us this year is that our oneness would grow. My prayer is that we would come to know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width to know the love of Jesus that, here's the crazy thing we'll read next week, surpasses all knowledge. 
and that we would know it as we look into the faces of one another. Let me pray for us as we come to the table. Father, pour out your spirit on this simple gift of bread and cup and make them be unto us the body and blood of Christ that we might become the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Unite us as we eat from one loaf, as we drink from one cup, which is technically one jug of grape juice. Unite us in ministry to one another. Help us to see one another tonight to love one another more deeply and help us to bear that unity into the world with us so that those far from you would come to know you. Help us become the bridge that people walk across to get to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I just want to close again with these words of Jesus. He says, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these 
whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples, you sent me. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. May you know this week that you're loved, not just by this warm, fuzzy feeling that Jesus might give you after you eat a weird taco, but may you know that Jesus loves you because you look into the face of somebody in your community that says you're awesome. Uh, We'll see you here next week. Uh, Can't wait.